Okay, I've got a question for you since um, it's Christmas time. Uh, what is the farthest that you have ever traveled to go for Christmas? So if you just like tell somebody near you, like what's the farthest either that you've traveled or there's somebody that, that, that knows you traveled to see you. So what's, what's the farthest? Okay, I, th- I think a year's worth of walking takes the cake, I guess. So that's, uh, that's the prize for today. Okay, um, let's see. Okay, Benjamin, you ready? How many people have seen uh, seen this this week? Raise your hand if you've seen this. You've seen that? Okay. All right. Yeah. This is um. This is the cover of the Westward. Um, I haven't seen this guy at Scum before. Um, I think he looks like he'd be related to Matt Jorgensen personally. Um, but. Um, yeah, I know it's not Jesus because obviously, you know, he's got these big blue eyes and blonde hair, pale skin, um, and he's uh, got multiple piercings, which probably a, a good Jew wouldn't have had back in the day, and, and they didn't have cigarettes, so, you know, that makes no sense. Although he is doing the, uh, the three crosses, it's kind of like Christian gang signs, you guys know about this? If you could look at the icons, you know, there's... You have three crosses here. You've got the, the cross, the, the two fingers here, and you have like two crossbars here, and your thumb makes the post. So it's kind of like the three crosses at Calvary. If you always wonder what that is, there it goes. But obviously he's holding the cigarette in between there. All right. Now, Scum of the Earth uh, made the cover of Westward, and uh, we are the feature article in this week's issue, you know, Christmas time. Talk about a church, I guess. Um, actually, uh, it's a long article, almost 5,000 words. And if you read the first half of it, you know, pretty tame stuff, really. I mean, talks about the background of Scum of the Earth, some of my background, and, um, you know. And then you get about midway through, and they uh, start interviewing various people around, uh, and it gets a little bit tense. So the interview, uh, artist Lonnie Hanson, who was the man who used to own the building at 935 West 11th before we did, uh, gay man, and uh, we always get along really, really well um, until this article is being written. Um, we had a very cordial relationship. He even uh, donated his grandfather's old Fiat, 1969 Fiat, which is in the back of the building uh, that we were able to sell and put toward church use. But So, yeah, been very helpful. Um, Lonnie uh, is gay and uh, has been for many, many years in a committed relationship. Um, and he did not realize that we were not what you would call open and affirming, I guess, open and affirming, meaning that that official term, which means um, as far as homosexuality goes, not only do you invite 
those of the homosexual persuasion into your congregation, but you celebrate that lifestyle as a God-given gift. Um, I would term scum for the most part open, period. Um, probably not open and affirming. Uh, he didn't know this because um, we never talk about it, really. I mean, it's not like one of those things we camp on. It's our read of the scriptures. We, in some ways, I think he got the gist of how we feel. In some ways, I think we, we would like to be open and affirming, but the scriptures constrain us. And um, we see sexuality, human sexuality, as best expressed within the bounds of heterosexual marriage, which means that we're not for things like polyamorous behavior. Um, we're not for things like extramarital affairs. We're not for things like premarital sex. We're not for those kinds of things because we are for sex within the confines of of marriage the way we see that God had planned it. Um, it's a difficult stance to take these days. I, I tend not to bring it up because I see it as being a secondary issue, not a primary issue. I think it might have been the monk Mendelin who said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Charity as in agape love, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity would be the way I would look at it. We want to keep the main thing the main thing here at Scum of the Earth. The main thing is Jesus Christ, him who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a life on earth, who taught us about the Lord, who showed us who God was in the flesh, who was uh, tortured, who was killed, who was buried, and then who was raised again on the third day, and then ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, who will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his reign will have no end. We believe that is the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. Jesus is the guy. And... All other things pale in comparison, including your choices in terms of your sexuality. Because I have friends who love Jesus, who read the Bible differently than I, and they will tell me that homosexuality, Mike, is, is fine. The same rules that apply to healthy heterosexual relationships apply to healthy homosexual relationships. And so we agree to disagree on that area because it's not essential. So, you see what I'm saying? In all things love, in all things charity. And so Lonnie was interviewed for this article, didn't know that we had a very conservative stance theologically, or at least most people here. We don't have an official stance at all as a church. We just don't. 
It's not one of those things we wrote down because it's not one of those main things. If you go and look at our statement of faith online, you'll see what we think is important. The most important. And so, uh, midway through the interview, the writer tells Lonnie, well, you know, they're not open and affirming. And then it's like, for Lonnie, it's like tearing off a wound that had been scabbed over. He's a gay man who has been maligned, ridiculed, marginalized, sometimes by people in the church. Oh, his own family members have been on opposite sides of that issue with him. And for him, it was like having a scab just ripped open during the middle of an interview. And Lonnie started bleeding pretty much all over the pages of the interview. And um, it's painful to read. Because I really like Lonnie Hanson. I respect him. And it was hard because we've had such a friendly relationship. And so about two weeks ago when I read the rough draft, I knew that I had to call Lonnie. Now Lonnie was reading the rough draft the same day as I was because we had been given a copy by the writer, which I think the writers of Westward weren't really happy with, but he did it anyway. And I'm very grateful that he did that. And so the next day, I called Lonnie, and we had over an hour conversation by phone. He uh, answered the phone, and it was a very cold reception. And 65 minutes later, uh, we ended up very warmly, kind of like old times, agreeing to disagree. I told him this is something that I struggle with. It, it's not something that I take lightly. I understand the pain uh, a bit that he's gone through, largely because of people that I'm very close to who have had the same experience. I said, you know, I'm even looking at this whole thing again. I'm going to look at the scriptures again because I want to make sure that uh, I'm reading the scriptures correctly when they say that homosexual activity is not part of God's design. I told him that I, I don't choose who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's God's job. And that I imagine there'll be homosexuals in heaven. Just as I hope that I'll be there. You know? I mean, I... And so by the end of the conversation, he says, well, Mike, you know, this is really great. He goes, but you can't come too far to the left, Mike, because you've come too far to the left. You're going to lose all your funding. <laughs> so just be careful. So he's giving me advice by the end, which I appreciated. I mean, he was watching out for, for us, ask him of the earth, saying, I know you've got to fix that building up. It was okay for a residence, but it's not okay as a building anymore, or as a, a large assembly gathering place. So I wanted you all to know that. I wanted you all to know that, that when I got done talking to Lonnie, that, that I wished that I could have that conversation with every gay person who read the article. And I can't. But you can. 
a lot more than I can. I, I think we can express our love and our concern even though we disagree on what is a non-essential. Jesus is the main thing. The main thing is our statement of faith, which you can find online, and I encourage you to read. Or you can find a different version than the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed that we, we read occasionally here at SCUMP. Uh, there's a couple other interviews, second half of the article, um, with people who either have been to SCUM or know people who go to SCUM, and those interviews come off mixed as well. Now, these are folks who know us, and their friends are here. They don't agree with us philosophically. Some people would have us believe that uh, because... We are Christians who are not supposed to judge that we're not supposed to have any kind of moral compass at all, like everything goes. And there is a fine line between acceptance and approval. We accept everyone. In my home, I accept people that I don't approve of. There's a line between acceptance and approval. A person doesn't have to meet my approval to enter my home, to have a meal, to be with my family, to be part of my life. I would hope that is the normal case for you guys. That you don't make everybody that hangs out with you follow some rigid set of rules which ushers them into your acceptance. You can accept people without approving everything everything they do. And honestly, this is a very important piece of advice if you ever plan to get married. I'm just telling you right off. All right? Acceptance without approval, okay? You'll need to know that before you get married. It's not just something we do, you know, in some giant corporate way. Now... I am going to try and relate this whole Westward article and the things that I've gone through as a result of this article lately with today's scripture reading later. So right now, I'm going to read the scripture reading for today. We are in Matthew chapter 2, starting in the first verse, the visit, the visit of the Magi, okay? The visit. That's kind of like magi and visit all put in together one. All right. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Interesting. Matthew starts off putting the birth of Jesus smack dab in the middle of history in a particular place. Which is great, because that's what happened. He grounds it in reality. During the reign of King Herod. Now, King Herod, and I think I've said this before in another sermon, but I'll refresh your memory. King Herod was a paranoid king, the older he got. He had many wives, he had many sons, and he was very, very afraid that one of them, one of his sons, was going to usurp his throne. And so... He made sure that anybody who looked like a threat, whether you were his son or not, would be killed. 
So he killed several of his wives and many of his sons to the extent that Caesar Augustus, the big boss in Rome, the emperor of the known world, uttered his famous line that it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because, of course, Jews don't eat pigs. Right? Got it? Okay. I think it was funnier in the Greek, I think. Because <laughs> it was a pun as well. Anyway. So Magi come from the east and came to Jerusalem. We think they probably came from the area what, that is now Iraq. Um, and they were Magi. Magi is short for magician, all right? We get our word magistrate because not only were they magicians, astrologers, but they were officials in the courts in that area of Babylon. As a matter of fact, I think every Babylonian emperor in the past had needed the approval of these magi in order to become emperor. So they were quite high up. They were quite learned. They were like, you know, Merlin and college professor all rolled into one. That'd be a fun class, huh? Verse 2, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these guys are professional star watchers. They're astronomers as well as astrologers, right? They're, they're looking at the sky, and they see something happen in the heavens. And, and as far as they're concerned, because they are astrologers, these things that happen in the heavens have meaning. And very often, the birth of a great ruler was mirrored in the evening sky. We don't know what the star was. One astronomer from Rutgers University thought it was an alignment of stars and planets. Jupiter would have been considered, you know, the largest of the planets, the largest, you know, one of the largest bodies, and it moved around the heavens, and that had something to do with it. Another British astrophysicist uh, thought that the Bethlehem star was indeed a real star. You can still see it by telescope today, he says. But at the time that Jesus was born, it became a supernova, and so it was ultra bright in the sky. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. We don't know. It doesn't matter. They saw it in the heavens, and this caused them... to come and worship him. They traveled a thousand miles. And they didn't travel a thousand miles by airplane or by luxury limo. They traveled a thousand miles in a caravan with camels and donkeys and horses. And it wasn't like it was a safe interstate highway with rest stops. I mean, it was... Trade routes that were lined with robbers. And so I'm sure they would have had a whole escort of military with them. 
You're not going to come bringing expensive treasures in that time without some substantial force. And, you know, we like to think there's, there's three magi because, oh, I don't know, because it fits in the coffee table with the rest of the nativity scene. Or because there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh that they bring, and so we figure three gifts, three kings. That makes it nice and tidy. But it could have been a dozen magi. It could have been a couple. I don't know what it was. And just so you know, if you set up your nativity scene like in your living room and you have your little baby Jesus in the manger and then you have Mary and Joseph, which my son Ethan uh, noticed yesterday, he goes, Mary never has any baby fat in those little nativity scenes. She always looks like a very young, slim, trim girl. And so we were talking, well, it's a miracle birth. This is probably the miracle of the baby fatness. <laughs> I don't know. And then you have, you know, donkeys and lammies and horses and um, the shepherds, right? Angel, usually hovering above. He's on a hook someplace right above the stable. And if you're going to put the wise guys in this nativity scene and you want to be accurate, you better put them like in the farthest corner of the house in the bedroom or the garage because they are on their way. They just saw the star appear, right? And it takes them a while to go a thousand miles. So it might be a year later when they finally make it to Jerusalem. Maybe two years. We don't know. <laughs> okay. Just so you know. Let's go back. Verse 2, and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Paranoia. <laughs> Disturbed is too light a word. The actual word in Greek means more like terrified, greatly agitated, maniacal. He had a fit of the crazies. And all Jerusalem with him. You're going, why would all Jerusalem care? Well, they're all employed. You know how in Washington, D.C., whenever you get a new administration, people lose their jobs and other people come in? <laughs> it's worse here. Like, you know, new king comes in, you don't just lose your job, you could lose your life. When he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, you know, Herod knows a little bit about the Bible. He probably hasn't gone through the Bible in a year or anything. Probably should have. But 
he knows who knows the answer. And so he calls these learned Bible scholars and they say, well, it's right here in the prophet. Micah is going to be Bethlehem, just down the road, like five or six miles, just down the road. Matter of fact, um, I think we had uh, a scummer, Christine Wittstrom, who's studying in Jerusalem. She's studying Hebrew in Jerusalem, who actually walked from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. Isn't that correct? And then, yeah, I hope she got a ride in the cab on the way home. But anyway, it's that close. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, this is like... So I too may go and worship him with my sword. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went on ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Okay, wait a minute. All of a sudden, there's this constellation, star, supernova, something or other, that it rises, right, on the horizon, and they see it, and that's fine and dandy. You can follow, you can know it's Jerusalem and Judea, and you can go there, but now it's moving. This is some kind of star. This is like a miracle star. Some people think it might have been an angel, disguised as a star, kind of like in the Dawn Treader movie, right? Who knows? Because this star, like, moved and went over the place, over the house. I think the word is house. Is it oikos? Yeah, it's oikos. Is, you ever have oikos yogurt? It's Greek yogurt, right? It means it's like homemade yogurt, you know? It's oikos. They went to the house. They didn't go to the stable. Because Joseph's not a dweeb. And he got his wife out of the stable and his child and put them into a house. Because it's probably a year later. Because he's a child. He's a child at this point. Not a baby. It says so in the text. That's how I know. The Greek word actually means little child, little kid. Not baby. On coming to the house, the oikos, uh, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. Interesting, they don't talk about the Magi worshipping Herod. I'm, I'm sure they did. Like, you probably didn't get out of there with your head if you didn't. But, I mean, Matthew makes sure. But even though he's coming into, even though these Magi are coming into a house of a typical young blue-collar couple, right? Father's a carpenter, stay-at-home mom. That, that even though they're coming here, they're falling on their faces like they were in a palace. 
They traveled a thousand miles. They braved all sorts of stuff. In the middle of the journey, they're going, man, I should have stayed back in Babylon with the, the wine and the great food and the servants and... Would that we would seek Jesus with the same passion that these magicians did. And they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. I'm going, wait a minute. Just get up in the middle of the night? pack up the family and travel all the way to Egypt? Like, Joseph, you're a carpenter. I mean, how much savings do you have? Like, where do you get that kind of money? Oh, yeah, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Oh, right, okay, right, right, I get it now. It takes money to travel, doesn't it? It takes money to be an alien in another country, an immigrant, Jesus knew the immigrant experience. Isn't that cool? I uh, want to talk a bit about the gifts that they brought. Just so you know, I mean, a lot of Christians throughout the years have found great significance in the gifts. Gold, obviously. Gifts... um, fit for a, uh, a king, gold. You know, what do I bring Jesus? You know, I don't know when I bring Jesus. Maybe the lint from my pocket sometimes. Actually, some right here. Some people have said, you know, gold, we should bring Jesus our best. The best that we have, the most expensive stuff. All of, all of our wealth belongs to him. Frankincense was one of those incense things that they burn in the temple. It speaks of his deity, of him being God. So what do you bring to a deity? You bring worship, just like the Magi. You, you fall on your face. You submit yourself to his will. You know that he has the power of life and death, and so you reverence him. You're in awe of him. You do what he says. You bring your best. You do what he says. You submit yourself. And third, the myrrh pointed to his humanity. It was a spice they used when you died. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus was uh, was buried, they wrapped his body in linen and they put like, you know, there's like 75 pounds of 
of, uh, of myrrh they would put on a body back then. Did the Magi understand all this symbolism? Probably not. Doesn't mean it's not there. You give Jesus your life. The myrrh, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Give him our best, submit to him as king. Give him our life, our death. You know, if God could use a star to bring these magicians to Jesus, then he can use anything to reach us. Don't be surprised at what God might use to get your attention. He's creative. Infinitely creative. And he breaks through to people who seem so far away from him that it boggles your mind when they come to Jesus and they bow down and they offer him everything they are and all that they have. He can use a conversation. He can use a book. He can use a television show, a song, even a chance comment. If God can reach the Magi, he can reach anybody. Now, Leonor talked about the shepherds being unlikely people to be reached by the Lord, having the thin place of the angels in an unlikely place. If the shepherds were unlikely people because they were on the fringes of Jewish society and they were in an unlikely place, they were out watching their fields at night, then if these guys are unlikely, then the magicians here are the wrong people. They're the wrong ones. They are not even Jewish. They don't follow the same laws. They don't respect the same God. And they're in the wrong place. They're a thousand miles away. And God still brings them, right? Still brings them, uses whatever. And so sometimes God's ways are inscrutable to us. We cannot tell what God is doing or when he's doing it in someone's life. It looks like the wrong way with the wrong people. And now I want to bring together the Westward article and the passage today. When the writer of the article first came to me, he told me that he was writing a book about the outworkings of the Jesus movement and how that played out in the new millennium. Now, being the product of the Jesus movement myself, I was interested. That's great. So he came over to the office and he got out his digital recorder and he put it on the table. And we started talking, and then he said, oh, by the way, I was thinking that since I'm doing this research for the book, that maybe I could take part of it and I could use it as an article for the Westward because, you know, then I can get a little bit of money and kind of help fund the rest of what I'm trying to write. And I, he says, is that okay with you? <laughs> and I said, well, it is the Westward, you know, a kind of incendiary journalism over there. I mean, it's uh, something's got to be fantastic. It's got to have a spin on it. It's got to be somewhat 
attention-grabbing. And I'm not really crazy, honestly, about scum being in the westward because I know they'll take an angle on us I'm probably not going to like. And he understood that. And it was a long shot anyway because he hadn't talked to the editor yet. And, you know, well, you know how that story ends. (laughs) And then he starts interviewing people. And the more people interviews, the more ticked off people get at us. And I'm going, I wish I could talk to every single person who's getting upset because, you know, basically the writer is spreading malicious truths about us. I don't know what to say. (laughs) It's like, you know, you're being outed for being a religious conservative. (laughs) I thought it was like you outed yourself. I thought that was like common knowledge. Etiquette in that world. But um, but you know, the whole while I sensed, and I'm, I mean, I didn't do the interview because I wanted to be in Westward I, at all. I didn't do the interview because I wanted to be in some book that some guy's writing. No, what I wanted to do was I wanted to be somehow an aid, a help, uh, to come alongside this young man who was writing an article because I figure he's on some kind of a journey. Some kind of a spiritual journey. Why else would you be attracted to a church like Scum of the Earth if you don't have spiritual things in your head that you're trying to figure out? And so I said, okay, fine, come on over, we'll talk. I don't care about the book. I don't care about Westward. I care about you. And um, this happens. I don't regret it. I don't regret it. He got a chance to rub shoulders with people from Scum of the Earth. He got his bike worked on at the bike shop. He uh, got his girlfriend prayed for because she was ill for a while. I don't regret it at all. During the course of the interview, I find out that, you know, when he kind of comes from a Christian background, I got the sense that maybe he was hurt by people in the church someplace in his past. And he's trying to work out his whole spiritual life. And this is part of it. And that's okay. He's on a journey. Perhaps God has called him. And it's been a really, really hard journey. Maybe he was waylaid by a band of robbers along the way. And he's double circumspect now. He's always looking around to see who might hurt him, who may not. How should we respond to God doing things outside the way we normally see things done. We don't get in the way, all right? We don't get in the way. I don't think we should judge somebody's journey. The Magi were not the kind of people you would have expected to come and worship Jesus. They were the New Agers of their day. 
It'd be like having some kind of pagan solstice ritual, and in the middle of your pagan solstice ritual, there is a prophecy about Jesus, and so you go check Jesus out. Whatever we can do to help them on their way, let us help them on their way. Let us point them to Jesus. Let us keep the main thing the main thing. Let us major in what is essential, and that is Jesus Christ. Why would I call Lonnie? I called Lonnie because I do not want to be an impediment on Lonnie's journey to Jesus. Who's going to call Maria, who is also interviewed in the article? Who's going to call Israel, who is also interviewed in the article? Who is going to aid anybody else who picks up this very religious-looking cover, to a degree, (laughs) and help that person on his or her way following the star? It's our job. It's our job. It's our job not to get in the way. We don't want to be the Herods in the story who have all the knowledge of the Scriptures, all the history with the people of God, and then try and thwart what God is doing. We don't want to be those people, right? All right. I'm going to stop and uh, take a few questions, just a couple. If anybody's got any about the article, about the passage, I thought maybe this could be a good time to do that. Any questions? Yeah. Did the did the magician did the magicians did the magi really do magic? I don't know. The man behind you may know more than I. I do know that they were pagan. I do know that they worshipped other gods besides the God of Israel. I know that they probably worshipped the stars and the planets. And if there was a little magic thrown in there, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, They were, I mean, honestly, I mean, we don't know this, and this is all speculation, but remember the prophet Daniel was uh, captive in Babylon for many, many years, 600 years before. So his writings at this point would have been at least 500 years old, and um, they probably would have had access to those. And they, you know, for them it probably was like the writings of Nostradamus, you know, I mean, for them, because Daniel was this Jewish prophet guy who was known to be very, very wise. And, you know, they might have had scraps of his prophecy, you know, along with prophecies from who knows how many other pagan philosophers. So my guess is uh, probably, but I don't know. Any other questions? All right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you have any advice for pointing to the essentials, especially for people who are hurt, as opposed to pointing to the non-essentials? 
Yeah, bite your tongue a lot. Um, I think Christians sometimes say too much. The Proverbs say that where there are many words, sin is not absent. And um, I think that the less we say, the better off we can be. For example, and I'll just give this as an example. When I was actually being interviewed by the writer, there were things that popped into my head that I wanted to say, and I'm a very transparent guy, actually. I just, I like to just put it all out there, right? And, and, I, and I wanted to say things, and the, uh, I, I could kind of hear the Holy Spirit saying, just don't say that. Don't give them that information. You don't have to say everything. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I just didn't say much. Um, um, so, yeah, so I, uh, that's one piece of advice I think is a really good one. I think also, I think uh, here's, this is kind of an odd one. This is just from my personal experience. If there was a movie camera somewhere in your vicinity when you're talking to these folks, the movie camera should not be able to tell a difference between the way you treat that person and the way you treat your dearest friend. Like there should be, you know, laughter and conversation and hugs and, you know, let's, let me help you with this, let's go here. I mean, I don't think there should be any difference in the way you treat people, even if you don't approve of uh, what they're, they're doing or thinking. Does that make sense? Anything else that I could, that I'm not zeroing in on? Okay, great. Yeah, Jesse. Has there been any reaction from other churches based on this? Not so far that I'm aware of. There's a ton of uh, text flying back and forth on the Internet. Um, and and I just, be, just be careful if you decide to engage anybody on the Internet. Remember that our, that our verse says that when we are cursed, we bless. Okay, when we're reviled, we answer kindly. We signed up for that verse, okay? <laughs> and now that it's coming our way... God's given us, given, us, given us a chance to walk it out. So if you respond to anybody about this article, um, do so kindly uh, and, uh, and bless them as opposed to anything else. Um, but, yeah, I, I, uh, I haven't heard yet from other churches, no. Yeah, John. Yeah. Yeah, John said that, it, that uh, this article may be kind of like a star and, and guide some people toward us, and some people will come to see if we're as good as they said, and other people will come to see if we're as bad as they said in the article. But in the end, God is bringing them to us, and uh, we should treat them uh, like we would treat Jesus. Yeah. Marcus. My feelings about Israel. Oh, 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 oh. You know, um, yeah, Israel um, is one of the guys who's interviewed in the article, and he um, left the church because didn't like what he was hearing from some of his friends who were here at the church. And I want to say that... Um, Again, I think it's the acceptance without approval line that we've got to walk very, very carefully. Um, I mean, if someone is engaged in activity you think is spiritually harmful, even physically harmful, I think you're, uh, you're kind of bound as a brother or a sister in Christ to, to warn them, you know. But I don't think it should get to the place where they feel like, um, like they're not accepted. Uh, um, 
I don't know the details surrounding his story particularly because I wasn't privy to that. Um, But I would uh, not back down from saying that you're involved in a very dangerous lifestyle if that's the case. Um, But I would still invite him over for dinner and try and hang out with him and help him out when he needs help, whether it's moving or, you know, washing his dog or something. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. All right, that's, yeah. Um, the question is, why would I have anarchists or feminists work at, uh, at Scum of the Earth since I am the head of staff? Um, well, I can be bought off. Um, <laughs> no. Honestly, these things are, are not essentials. I mean, someone's political stand to me is not an essential. It, 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 everybody on staff agrees that the main thing is the main thing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what we agree on on staff. And someone's views on, on politics, I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat or anarchist, libertarian, it uh, doesn't matter to me. Um, as long as we are one in Jesus. Um, and as far as the feminist thing goes, I mean, um, I am a firm believer that uh, God does not view any one gender higher than another. Um, I do believe that there's different roles uh, that God has for, uh, for, for each gender, but um, even that's a non-essential. I mean, I, I, for those of you who know theological jargon, I'm a complementarian. Um, I do have egalitarians on staff, um, which is fine with me. <laughs> so, yeah. Anybody else? Uh-huh. <laughs> How's the My Pastor is a Big Fat Greek Loser campaign progressing? That's what you're asking. Um, <laughs> well, you'd be pleased to know that I, uh, up until yesterday, and I've not weighed myself today, okay, but I lost 10 pounds. So, so right on track. Actually, right on track. I want to lose 10 pounds a month. I figure I got about five more days left in the month. If I gain anything yesterday and today, I can probably get it off by, by the 31st. <laughs> That's my hope. One, uh, one, uh, Sarah Keller, one of the scum uh, folks, came up and asked uh, if she could be my personal trainer, which I begrudgingly said yes. And so she met me at the YMCA, and she's got me on this plan. And then Dave Rapp loaned me his commuter bicycle, and I, I, I guess he wants me to ride that more. And... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, um, I'm doing stuff, hopefully, to, uh, but yeah, so far, so good, yeah. So hopefully next month at this time, it'll be almost 20 pounds, so, yeah. And I think we're about up to, what, somewhere around 200 bucks a pound or so, right? Yeah, so that, that's good, yeah. So you can sign up on, online, and there'll be more, more next week. They're going to have this big, uh, big presentation next week, just so you all know. All right, okay, I'm going to close now. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for allowing us to come and worship you. I pray, Lord, that we can be people of integrity uh, and passion like the Magi of old. 
In Christ's name, amen.